0: Welcome to Inside the Draft, a weekly preview of the upcoming NFL Draft with insiders from around the country.
1: Hey, we're back for another episode of Inside the Draft. Good to be with you today. I'm Matt Taylor, joined in studio by Casey Valier. and the draft is exactly three weeks away as we sit here and talk right now. Round one, Thursday night, April 28th, and it's always good to talk draft this time of year with one of our favorites. Joining us today is Luke Easterling. He's the editor of the Draft Wire and Draft Analyst for USA Today. And you can find his work on Twitter, at Luke Easterling. Luke, thanks for the time, man. What's going on? How are you?
0: Hey, I'm doing great, guys. It's uh, Tis the season for me. It's my favorite time of year, obviously. A few weeks here to go, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the most wonderful time of the year. If you're
1: <laughs> well, let's start there. How ready for the draft are you? I mean, is all the work done for the most part, or do you still have... You know, a few guys moving up and down your board based on pro days and things like that.
0: Yeah, most of the hay is in the barn uh, at this point. Um, This last few weeks is usually about, um, you know, keeping track, like you said, pro day results here, especially for injured guys, right? Guys that maybe didn't work out at the the combine because they were still nursing an injury. Um, Obviously, guys like Derek Stingley, uh, LSU corner comes to mind. Uh, big name guys that, you know, weren't able again to work out in indie, but now are going to get a chance to, to be at full strength of the pro day. So you'll get some numbers there. Uh, but also some of those smaller school guys that maybe have fallen through the cracks. Obviously, when you're, when you're doing this, I, I I'm, I'm not an NFL team. I don't have an entire, uh, scouting, uh, <laughs> scouting team, uh, bringing me all the information. So, so mm-hmm. get, getting three, three hundred guys ish, you know, three hundred ish guys ranked and, and graded and, and scouted is, is quite, quite the undertaking and some guys will slip through the cracks. I'll put out some rankings or here and there. And obviously somebody who, who went to South Dakota state will be like, Hey, what about this guy? I don't see him in your rankings." So obviously every time Mm -hmm. I see one of those, I got to go check a guy out. So, you know, those types of things will happen over the next few weeks and guys will get added and moved a little bit here and there. But for the most part, You know, everything's pretty much done. Now it's about, you know, making cool graphics to go along with all the work you've been doing for the last (laughs) few weeks uh, and get it it out there in time for the draft. Yeah,
1: people don't realize, man, you are a jack of all trades. You do it all. You do a fantastic job. All right, so I want to talk about, you know, something that happened just uh, earlier this week, actually. The Saints and the Eagles, they pull off another trade and they swap multiple picks, multiple first round picks over the next couple of drafts. So the Saints get a second first rounder this year, the Eagles get an extra first rounder next year among the other early round picks that they already have. So Luke, I get this from an Eagle standpoint, but but what do you think the Saints are thinking in this trade?
0: Yeah, it feels like we can't go 5 minutes without one of these, right? I feel like every time I'm totally. writing up a mock every time I'm writing up a mock draft I I can't get you know I'm worried that another blockbuster trade is going to make it irrelevant by the time I press publish right so <laughs> so many uh, so many first round picks have changed hands and obviously this one's an interesting one because you're dealing with next year but also dealing with a team that had three first round picks mm-hmm. obviously it seems obvious you know it seems like from the Eagles' point of view it, it makes sense for the Saints it's interesting because. You got to think if you're trading up, you know, there was some talk, you know, right after the deal that maybe they're trying to jump ahead of the Chargers for an offensive tackle or something like that. I I don't see that type of move because if you're only trying to go up a couple spots for a particular guy and jump ahead of a, a, a team that late in the first round, you wait until you're on the clock to do that. You know, you wait until the board has fallen a certain way and the guy you want is still there, and then you jump ahead of that team because if you do that now, If you're trying to jump ahead of the Chargers, they just trade up ahead of you before the draft. Like, there's still so much time for things to change. So, to me, for the Saints, this tells me that there's another move coming, Um, that they are trying to get enough ammo to move up into the top ten, and I feel like you only do that if you're going after a quarterback. So, um, whether it's Malik Willis from Liberty, Kenny Pickett from Pitt, uh, I think Desmond Ritter is finally rightfully getting the kind of talk that maybe he's a top-20 pick um Again, the, the top quarterbacks always go higher, right? They, you know, we've talked for months now about how this draft class is not very strong at quarterback, especially compared to last year's. But it, it's so important to have that guy at that position that even when it may be a weaker class, if you don't have a quarterback, you've got to go find one. And getting one on a rookie deal is obviously a huge, you know, benefit to, to team building and trying to build a winner over those next four or five years on a cheap deal. So. You know, a guy like Desmond Ritter going in the top 20, I think, I think isn't crazy. Uh, but that's the type of – that's what it tells me from the Saints' perspective is that they're trying – they have multiple first-round picks now this year. I think they package those up to try to move up again. If I'm wrong, and if they don't, I think they're in a great position to, to get a left tackle to replace Teron Armstead, uh, who went to Miami. Uh, and I think they're in a great position to get a wide receiver to pair with Michael Thomas, assuming he's back to full strength and give Jameis Winston or whoever ends up being the quarterback there long term more weapons and more protection. They're in a great spot to do that if they don't move up again.
2: Now when you say that, you know, as as we just talked about most of the time when you do these trades of, you know, moving up in the draft, it is to get a quarterback. We talked about how it's, you know, not as deep of a quarterback class. Is there another position that you can feel that teams are eager to jump up to get those top tier guys at another position in this year's draft?
0: I don't know if there's a specific position because some of, the, some of the best talent in this draft is in positions where there's a lot of it. So yeah. if you need an offensive tackle, it's a great year because I think there's quite a few offensive tackles that are going to be first-round worthy that, to the point where I don't think you would have to trade up to make sure you get one of a certain number of guys, right? And I feel the same about the wide receiver class, the same about the edge defender class, those pass rushers. There's so many good ones that I feel like that you wouldn't necessarily have to move up for one because there's so many good ones that one is going to fall to you at some point, Mm -hmm. uh, especially in that first round. So for me, if, if that's the case, if they're not going after a quarterback and maybe they are moving up for someone else or a different position, it's because you want to take the best guy or a very specific guy that you think fits your scheme. And again, this is another big difference between the type of work that I do and the type of work that teams do. You know, we, we in the media do this from a very macro 10,000 foot, you know, this is what this player can do. This is how he might fit with this team or this team or this team. You know, it's a very, very different type of of evaluation process than it is for 32 different NFL teams who are evaluating these players with 32 different sets of criteria and, you know, playbooks and schemes and how players fit and what, you know, how big and long you need a corner to be in this defense versus this defense. It's a very, very different experience doing that for a team. So – You know, if they have a guy in mind, whether it's an edge guy or a tackle or a receiver, if it's not a quarterback, they may say, hey, we have got to get this guy to play this position on our team because we think he's that important. Then it makes sense that maybe they move up to make sure they can get ahead of any team who might need that position, who might take that guy before they get there, just to make sure they get their guy.
2: Now, I know you just talked about how it is difficult to kind of put yourself in those shoes but is there a guy that might be that sleeper that nobody's talking about? It seems like, you know, every year there's a team that trades up to get a quarterback and kind of shake your head and go, wow, he could have probably been available. Then is there a quarterback that's not in those top three that you've already talked about, whether it's Pickett, Willis, or is there like a Matt Corral that could be a guy that people are moving up to get?
0: I mean, I never say never. I've always said, I mean, I've been doing this for a long, long time and, and I've learned to never be shocked or surprised by anything that happens on draft day. And right. and to your point, that. I feel like we've always had that feeling, right, where we have months and months of evaluation and we kind of get used to seeing certain guys mocked in a certain range or certain guys coming off the board in a certain order at a particular position, right, that when it doesn't go that way on draft day, a lot of the times I think our initial reaction is, wow, I that guy could have been available on day two, and why is that? Well, because I expected that, because all of our mock drafts have said right. that, when in reality, if a guy goes 20 – It probably means he wasn't getting to 22 or 25, and a team knows that, and that's why they move up to get their guy because a lot of the energy that general managers and their staffs put into this process is information gathering from their connections throughout the league because they want to know if a team is going to snipe them or not, if a team is going to take the guy they want and where and trying to understand how to maximize that value and figure out where guys are most likely to go. Is a huge part of this process. So when I see a team move up for a guy, whether it feels high to me because of either my rankings or where I've expected them to go, you know, I'm down here in the Tampa area. So, you know, when they took Kyle Trask at the end of the second round, you know, that was a bit higher than I would have expected him to go in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. But that told me that the Bucs were confident he wouldn't get to their third round pick. And right. what happened? They took him at 64, and then two of the first teams to pick in the third round took quarterbacks, Davis Mills and Kellen Mond went to Houston and Minnesota, which means the Bucks knew that Kyle Trask, if they wanted him, they had to take him there because he wasn't getting to them in the third round. So to get back to your original question, sorry I was a bit long-winded, <laughs> that's right. but that's how that process works. When a guy comes off the board higher than expected, it's because he was always going to go higher than we expected. So somebody had to jump up and get him even earlier to right. make sure they got a hold of him. So, uh, you know, the guy for me would be Matt Corral. I think Sam Howell from North Carolina could be in that mix as well. Uh, but I see him more as a second-round day-two guy. But, again, quarterbacks are too valuable. So if all of these top five guys go in the in the first round, and, and think about it, if guys like Ritter or Corral or even Howell, if they're on the board late in the first round, that is always the most popular place for teams who need quarterbacks to trade into the bottom of the first round from the second round, in part because you get that fifth-year option, right? You get that right. extra year on the rookie deal, which, again, when you're talking about a quarterback, if you hit on a quarterback, getting that extra year on that rookie contract is even more important than any other player because, again, you're getting him at yeah. basically a bargain rate if you hit on that guy. So, so yeah, Corral would be the guy to me um, outside of those top three that we mentioned earlier that would that would make sense in terms of going higher than maybe we expect. But But all five of those guys, because the quarterback position is too important and I think they have the tools to be starters at the next level, wouldn't shock me at all if a team even moves up into the bottom half of the first round to make sure they get one of those guys.
1: Luke, uh, of all the quarterbacks, you, you brought up Desmond Ritter, you brought up Malik Willis. Of all the quarterbacks in this draft class, which of that group is, is most likely to have a significant career?
0: Well, I think uh, overall career, I think that that Willis is is the guy that has the most The biggest chance to be a superstar I guess is what and and I call this the Lamar Jackson rule because when I went you know through the 2018 draft you know there was a a lot of quarterbacks that were talked about going really really high and when I evaluated them all I kept coming back to the fact that all of them had flaws and it felt like more people were focused on Lamar Jackson's flaws than what he brought in a positive way and they were less interested in the flaws that those other quarterbacks brought to the table and that kind of frustrated me so it kind of changed how I evaluated quarterbacks in a way, because let's be honest. If you take a quarterback in the first round and you don't hit, you're getting fired no matter what, <laughs> probably. Right. So if you're going to get fired for picking the wrong quarterback, you might as well pick the guy. That's the, the greatest chance to, to hit a grand slam, right? Yeah. <laughs> hit, take, take the guy who's got the biggest, highest ceiling, because even if you take a mediocre guy and it doesn't work out, you're probably getting fired. So, So swing to the fences is what I'm saying. And and again, Lamar Jackson proved to be a a fantastic pick and went really, really late. But, you know, coming back to that idea of how do you separate a quarterback class? And for me, it's Malik Willis because he has, yes, he has flaws, Yes. He has things he needs to work on, but he has two things that nobody else in this quarterback class has. He has the best arm in this class and he has the athleticism in this class that nobody else has. So, if I'm gonna have to risk on a quarterback, and again we talked about how this class isn't the deepest, yeah. if I'm gonna take a risk at the position, I'm gonna take a risk that gives me the best chance of return on investment. And I think Malik Willis's physical tools, that that athleticism to make plays outside of the pocket and that just absolute ridiculous arm talent that I think again nobody else in this class has. I'm taking a swing on that. You know, could Kenny Pickett be a better starter in the in the short term? Absolutely because of his experience he's a little more polished right now. But, again, if I'm taking a quarterback in the first round, give me the guy that has the best chance to, to, to really be a superstar, and I think that's Malik Willis.
1: I love it. makes a lot of sense. All right, let's talk about the Colts. Um, as you know, Luke, they don't have a first-round pick, as we sit here and talk now, barring one of those blockbuster trades that have been going on left and right since March. Um, but how, how do you think they navigate the early part of their draft in rounds two and three based on the needs you have for them going into this draft?
0: Yeah, I think the big question for them is going to be, you know, when we finally come on the clock, assuming they don't pick until, again, that second-round pick, are we are we more focused on life after Matt Ryan and, and thinking about trying to extend, you know, our life at the quarterback position by taking a guy like Sam Howell if he happens to be there? Or are we trying to build around Matt Ryan to keep ourselves in the contention, you know, window this year and give him a, a wide receiver, give him somebody that can stretch the field? Um, somebody in, you know, maybe in a, in a T.Y. Hilton, but younger type of mold, right? Um, and I think they're more likely to go that route than they are to take a quarterback at that spot, mostly because I don't know if the, if a quarterback worthy of that pick will get there, um, but also because I feel like next year's quarterback class looks to be a bit better at the top, and if you end up needing a quarterback and, and you get a chance to pick a better one, then obviously that's a better scenario. But, you know, I, I really like how this wide receiver class could stack up for them in that early to mid second round range Um, if they're looking for a guy that could replace what T.Y. Hilton has brought to them Sky Moore uh, from Western Michigan is a guy who again undersized guy but really explosive great after the catch can stretch the field deep Um, if they want a bigger guy I know that tends to be their mold at wide receiver they like the bigger more physical guys I think George Pickens from Georgia if he happens to be there again a guy that was you know hyped big time throughout his career at Georgia but had that torn ACL last spring and really impacted his his ability to start strong this season came on strong once he finally got to full strength. And I think we saw some of that in the national title game against Alabama. Um, but if he happens to be there again, it's a really deep class. Not all of these receivers can go in the first round. There's only, you know, even if we see five or six of them go, there's going to be some first round talent at wide receiver falling to the second round. And I think if either of those guys are there, it makes sense uh, for them to take that guy. And, and again, after that, once you've handled that, that need, I think, you know, maybe you look at left tackle. If you still don't have a veteran there to replace Eric Fisher um, maybe you go to the defensive side of the ball where you just traded away Rock Yassin and, and maybe you need a corner there. Um, a lot Again, another position that's very, very deep in this class. Lots of big, fast, athletic corners in this class, and I think the second and third round should give them starting caliber options Uh, At that position as well.
2: Now, you mentioned kind of all the needs that the Colts kind of have when you look at it from, you know, just looking at the piece of paper that we're looking at with, you know, potential needs at positions. And it seems to be those are the areas of depth in this draft. But let's say we're talking about, you know, a left tackle. It is tough to kind of find a left tackle in that second round. Typically, those guys are the front end in that first round. So if you're looking at that tackle position there at 42 when the Colts are picking, who are a couple names that are guys, you know, maybe they aren't, quote unquote, ready right now guys but in a couple years could be a starting caliber left tackle
0: yeah uh, one guy that i really like is abe lucas uh from washington state west coast guy that uh that played in a a very pass happy offense so you know he can pass protect they obviously throw the ball quite a bit out there at, uh, at washington state um so he's a guy that i think again very very athletic has tons of potential and and again needs to clean up his technique a little bit and i think once he does that which again that's what nfl coaching is about i think nfl coaching staff look at some of these prospects and they're like yeah he's he's a little sloppy yeah he needs some refinement that's our job that's what we're supposed to do give us the talent get the talent in the building and then let us take care of the rest um and i think abraham lucas again may might seem a little early that that high but again when you're looking for a left tackle that that position is so important in particular, right? Um, similar to the quarterback, right? Where where maybe you have to take him a little earlier than in a vacuum you think he might go based purely on a grade standpoint. But if you hit on that franchise left tackle, it's a big deal. Um, another guy, uh, Bernard Raymond uh, from Central Michigan. The only thing, the only issue I think teams will have with him is he's going to be twenty five years old as a rookie, wow. um, and again, that's a little bit older than you'd like to have your your first round pick or second round pick be. Um, but in terms of a player, I think he's fantastic. Might be a better fit at right tackle than left tackle. Um, but, again, he's a guy that I think would be a quality starter right away. Doesn't quite have the ceiling that I think a guy like Lucas would. Um, but another name to keep in mind in that range. Well,
2: also there, when you talk about 25, I and mean, we're seeing some left tackles play. I mean, look at Andrew Whitworth. He was in the 40s. So, if you look at it that, I mean, that's still a good 15-year career if you look at it that way. So. <laughs>
0: Yeah, for sure. And you're always just trying to get these guys to a second contract, right? right? So exactly. if you're taking a 25-year-old guy and you're giving him a second contract at 29 and he's playing at a high enough level, you're probably thinking he's probably going to keep playing at that level into his, mm-hmm. his early mid-30s. So, that's yeah, it's not as much of an issue, I think, at that position in particular. But it's definitely just something to keep in mind. And, and it's it's like anything. This, this whole thing is a big, massive, complicated puzzle. And people <laughs> will talk about quarterback hand size, and they'll talk about 40 times and three cone times and all of these things and be like, oh, is this – overvalued or is this matter at all? Like it all matters, but it can all be overvalued. It's all, every right. single thing is just a piece to the puzzle. And if one thing isn't there, you have to make sure that what is there, you know, overcomes that and, and makes up for that. So it's everything matters to a point, but nothing matters more than the the, the whole picture that you're getting on each yeah. of these guys.
1: That's Luke Easterling. We could talk to him for two and a half hours about the draft. Uh, he's the editor of the draft wire draft analyst for USA today does a fantastic job. I got one more draft question and then before we close out with you Luke, I want to ask you about the the Buccaneers as you said you're based in Tampa Bay and uh, you cover the Bucks as well. I've got some interesting thoughts on uh, on Bruce Arians. But uh, another guy in the draft at wide receiver, a local kid, David Bell out of Purdue. He played at Warren Central High School here in Indianapolis. Um, I, mean, I remember covering his games, you know, doing high school football back in the day. How do you think he translates to the NFL? Because he's not a guy that's going to blow you away in a pro day or at the combine, you know, testing-wise. But man, you put on his film and he blows you away. How do you think he translates to, you know, this higher level coming from the Big Ten to the National Football League?
0: Yeah, I'm a big David Bell fan. I, I like his game a lot, and I think you were right. We were we were all kind of surprised and disappointed at his combine performance because that's just not the guy we see on film, right? right yeah. It's yeah. just it's not what you see on game day. And again, going in the Big Ten where you know there's there's fantastic competition and the the numbers he was able to put up, the consistency with the production and just how much of a problem he was and how versatile he can be. You know, being down here in the Tampa area, when I put on the tape and saw David Bell, I saw Chris Godwin. That's that's yeah. the immediate comp that came to mind. And obviously you can look at the athletic testing numbers and be like, oh, they're you know, they're not the same player at all, but put the film on and, and tell me that you don't see a guy who can line up in the slot, can line up outside, who is tough and physical and makes catches over the middle, can break tackles after the catch and make big plays happen that way can can win contested catches and doesn't have to be open to be open, right? He does all of those things. He blocks really well. You know, that's something that I think sets Chris Godwin apart and that more and more teams are looking for receivers who are willing and able to do that. He checks all of those boxes. So if you're telling me that the only problem you have with him is the fact that he didn't run a 40 the way you expected him to, I kind of got to throw that out a little bit because I saw him on tape doing things that other receivers in this draft just don't do. And, again, he's got yeah. great size you know, big physical. I think he's athletic enough on tape. He plays fast. And if I had to pick one, give me the guy who, who is fast in pads versus being fast uh, in his underwear in, 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 in Lucas Oil Stadium. So if I had to pick, that's what I would take. So, you know, short, short answer is I love David Bell. I think he's going to be a really, really productive pro. Uh, and I think he just does everything at a high level, similar to what we see, like I said, in Tampa from Chris Godwin. Does
1: he go on day two? Is he a day two guy? I think he should.
0: I think he should. If he has, If he's not on if he's on the board in day three, a lot of teams messed up, and somebody's going to be really, really happy in the fourth yeah. round.
1: No question about that. I think you're right. All right. Um, again, uh, you follow the Bucks, You cover the Bucks. Um, Bruce Arians, you know, he was here in 2012. That was my first year here with the Colts. He's one of my all-time favorite coaches, you know, personnel guys. Just he was awesome to work with, work around. He was so genuine, nice, kind, um, authentic, transparent. Um, I'm sure you have some of the same feelings there covering him from afar, but, but what's his legacy in Tampa uh, now that he's retired? He did a lot for that organization, obviously brought home a Super Bowl, but he did a lot of things behind the scenes that maybe you know about that uh, fans here in Indianapolis and around the league don't know what Bruce Arians' legacy, specifically with uh, the Buccaneers, is and should be known for.
0: I think honestly, I don't know if it's as much behind the scenes, but it's it's the things that have been overshadowed. I think over the last two weeks by the by the conspiracy theories that this this decision that he's made has been driven by Tom Brady, right. and has been all about you know Brady wanting him out or all, the, all of these stories with with again no basis in fact or any sort of evidence whatsoever, just conjecture and again wanting to to drum up entertainment value, yeah. I, I think, is, is really the purpose for that. And and what frustrates me the most about it isn't just that it's the general, you know, media people making things up and throwing things to the wall and giving the rest of, I think, the vast majority of the people in this business who do things the right way, giving us a bad name. It, it's the fact that it has it has overshadowed what Bruce has been saying this whole time about this decision. And, again, all those things that you said about your experience working with him in Indy, that's what we've experienced down here in Tampa and to see him to to see and hear him talk in his press conference and all of the the literature that we've seen come out of his decision to to walk away as a coach, that all tracks with that person, doesn't it? Yeah, it all makes sense. That's who we've known, that's who we've seen this whole time. So to see again certain certain people in the national media who again, I think that's part of my frustration too, is the people who are making this stuff up aren't here. They're not in the building. they don't see what we've seen and, and experienced it that way. so it's an ad, added level of frustration. To have to be so confident that something's happening behind the scenes that 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 is kind of nefarious, instead of looking at what Bruce actually said and and his entire succession plan, how much he cares for his coaches and his his staff and his people, how important it has been for him to to hand this off to Todd Bowles, who again is somebody he just he loves so much. Um, it, it is a it is it's an obvious next step right it feels again like b- based on everything we've learned and know about Bruce this feels completely yeah. like it tracks it, it, it's it's something that, that he's wanted to do for a long time it's not about Tom Brady it's not about you know leaving before he's ready and the timing doesn't make sense and all that it's the timing doesn't make sense he explained it to everybody and I think maybe people just have a hard time at this point in, in the way the world is believing that someone could actually do something for selfless reasons <laughs> uh, and step away for that
1: Holy moly, Uh,
0: what? If you look look at his track record, again, just here in Tampa, and look at what Bruce Arians has done, the NFL, again, has tried with the Rooney Rule and tried to do all these things to encourage diversity, and they haven't worked very well. They really haven't in terms of results. Go look at what Bruce Arians has done. While the NFL is trying to figure out how to do this, Bruce Arians has just been doing it. Yeah, he just did it himself. His top four assistants are all black coaches. And, and again, Keith Armstrong, special teams coordinator, Harold Goodwin, who's been his assistant his nope. assistant head coach and the run game coordinator. Right. And, again, obviously Todd Bowles as the defensive coordinator and, and Byron Leftwich as the offensive coordinator. He was the first NFL head coach to have two women on his staff in full-time roles. You know, these are things that – you want to talk about his legacy. That's his legacy. No doubt. Yes, he, he won a Super Bowl. Yes, it took him three years, basically, to turn the Bucs for a team who never went to the playoffs into a team that's going to the playoffs every year. Right. Yes, Bruce – you know, Tom Brady has a lot to do with that, but Tom Brady said flat out that he wouldn't have come to Tampa if not for Bruce Arians. So it's all connected. And, again, so, yes, there's a championship legacy on the field that Bruce Arians leaves, but the legacy that will be felt in Tampa and beyond throughout the rest of the league is what he's done to build coaches and again specifically minority coaches both right. black coaches and women that is what will will live on and i think if he makes it to the hall of fame i think it'll be just as much if not more about what he did in that world as it as what he did on the field as a coach
1: and luke in 2000 2011 after a stint with the pittsburgh steelers he was done he was going to retire and then the Colts bring him in as the offensive coordinator that first year with Chuck Pagano. And then obviously we know what happened that year, you know, Chuck's illness, he gets sick, the uh, the leukemia diagnosis. Bruce was incredibly uncomfortable being referred to as the head coach or the interim head coach. He was basically the the guy and he said this metaphorically and then literally, I was keeping the light on for Chuck. They left the light on in Chuck Pagano's office that entire season, you know, from mid-September on into the playoffs. And he handled it with class, dignity, respect. I mean, the guy's unbelievable in my opinion. So, I mean, I, I really appreciate everything that you just said because I, I cannot hold Bruce Arians in any higher respect and class that I already do right now. So I really appreciate you saying that.
0: Yeah, and again, you, you hit the nail on the head. And one thing, one last thing I would mention is also the impact that he's had in this community off the field with his the Arians Family Foundation. He and his wife Christine, his son Jake – you know, they've been so instrumental in an important part of our community fighting for the the Guardian Ad Litem program, which helps kids, again, who are in the adoption system or in the foster system and, and don't have legal representation to go through the court system with an adult helping them and caring for them and, and representing them mm-hmm. in very overwhelming and, and challenging situations. Just, you know, a, a population that I think needs so much love and care. And, and they are putting, again, walking the walk instead of just talking the talk and, and leaving this community, again, I'm born and raised here, so it means something to me being a part of this Tampa community and seeing him and his wife and his family pour out that, you know, out of their abundance into this community means a lot to me. And, again, like you said from the football side, there's so much evidence of him just being – the type of coach that you want to root for, go, go read his statement. Is That was the most, the least PR statement I've ever read from a guy <laughs> who's retiring. Yeah. And then go look at his press conference where he's in a Tommy Bahama shirt and a cigar in his pocket. Luke. And like, I mean, it's just hilarious. He has always been that guy. He is not going to be any different, whether people think it's for, reasons other than what he said if there's ever a guy where if he tells me something i'm going to just take it at face value it's going to be bruce arians because he's been that guy the whole time
1: no luke i mean you'll appreciate this story again going back to that 2012 season when chuck became ill you know we had that monday night uh you know following the game on sunday you know coaches show that that recap show that so many teams do um and obviously uh bruce filled into that role And it would start at like 6 p.m. He would come down around 5.50. He would sit in the chair and we would kind of prep him on, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about that. And he would just basically in his own way, kind way and – you know, only Bruce can can really do. He would just basically say, just shut, shut up. Just ask me whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Don't tell me your plan. Ask me whatever you want. I'm an open book. I'll tell you exactly what you need to know. You don't have to debrief me. And that's just, that's who Bruce was and that's who he is. And that's why we all love him as much as we do.
0: Yeah, Bruce was definitely not a let's do the podcast before the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> he no. He knew, just he knew, shut up and let's go. All the best content would come organically during right. the production meeting, and he didn't want to waste it.
1: Yeah, whatever you want to know, I'm going to tell you. Absolutely. So I really appreciate you going down that, uh, that road with us and uh, all the draft coverage and all the draft knowledge as well. Again, Luke Easterling has been our guest. Uh, draft Wire, draft analyst for USA Today. Again, follow him on Twitter, at Luke Easterling. Luke, before we let you go, uh, what are you writing about soon? And uh, again, besides those two things, where else can we check you out before the draft?
0: Uh, yeah, again, most of it, uh, most of my interaction will be on Twitter at Luke Easterling. You can gotcha. find my draft stuff at DraftWire.USA Today. Com. Yep. Obviously, I, I cover the Bucks as well. I'm the editor at BucksWire.USA Today. Com as well. Uh, and then this this next few weeks, like I said, we'll be rolling out our final rankings for every position group, and then my overall uh, board, the DraftWire 300, will come out the week of the draft. Uh, and then we'll be we'll be talking about sleeper picks, and we'll be talking about small school guys. We'll yep. be talking about all the gems that you can find in those later rounds uh and just putting the finishing touches on on whatever news happens between here and there. We got three weeks left, so I'm thinking at least ten more first round picks are be traded, <laughs> right uh, at, at this rate, the way the off season is gone, we're gonna have at yeah. least four more superstar quarterbacks traded. I don't know who knows at this <laughs> right. point, but uh Whatever happens, we'll have you covered there. At draft. Yeah,
1: there. I'm pretty sure the Rams have just traded their next three first-round picks, so it's going to be awesome, man, these next three weeks. Keeping track of everything. Luke Easterling, always fun to talk to you, man, leading into the draft. Have a great rest of the week, and uh, enjoy the draft in a few weekends. We appreciate it.
0: Hey, It's always a good time, guys. You do the same.